What's the craziest thing you've ever done to find belonging? I stopped at craziest thing and some, you know, some of you went crazy, but um, chances are the craziest thing you've ever done had something to do with belonging. And maybe it's not the craziest thing, but can you think of a time in your life where you, where you did something crazy all for the sake of finding belonging? I'll give you a second to think about that because this is important. I would make you share because I'm sure there are some great stories, but... Instead, I'll share with you uh, one that comes to mind for me. Um, It happened between my sophomore and junior year of high school. Um, You see, when I was in middle school, I was living my best life. I think I peaked in middle school, frankly. Um, In middle school, I was popular. I had tons of friends. I had tons of girlfriends. Some of them even knew about each other. No, I'm kidding. Um, But I, I had girlfriends. I had friends. I was good enough to make the basketball team. Middle school was awesome for me. And then I went to high school, and suddenly all of the girls, their interest was swept up by the older, hunkier guys. And I was no longer good enough to make the basketball team. And my friend group who had been, we'd been friends, I mean, through like elementary school and on, and and suddenly in high school, everyone kind of splintered as people got involved in different things and found different communities to be a part of. And and I just found myself left alone without a community, without any sense of, of, of belonging, which is hard at any point in life, but it's especially hard, I think, in high school. And so here's 10th grade me uh, just, you know, suddenly finding my life in a very different place, not really sure what to do. And just, just to, you know, give you the picture of what this looks like, literally the picture of me in 10th grade, my 10th grade school picture, um, I looked like this. I mean, come on, ladies, what's wrong with that? I'm wearing a rayon shirt and everything. I mean, I was living it. Um, <laughs> so the summer between 10th and 11th grade, I made an important discovery I discovered Doc Martens, flannel shirts. I discovered black hair dye, Marlboros, and grunge music. Um, just to be clear, this wasn't me. This isn't me. This is, this is uh, Jared Leto. Anyone know the show he was from? My so-called life. Yeah, I mean, you didn't even have to think. Like, that was on the tip of your tongue. Uh, Jordan Catalano, my so-called life. He unquestionably wore it better, but this is kind of what I was going for. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, I would show a picture to you of what I look like after my transformation, except, honestly, I don't think one exists. I texted my mom this week, and I'm like, hey, mom, can you send me school pictures? I really want the 10th to 11th grade. Do you have anything around the house? And she sent me pictures of every year, and she's like, I can't find anything in 11th grade. And I think that's how horrifying I was that no one photographed me for that entire year. To make matters worse, that year, my 11th grade year, my junior year of high school was when my older sister got married and there still isn't a picture of me. <laughs> but this is what I was going for, put on the flannels and the thermals and the, you know, all the stuff. And, and I remember walking into high school the beginning of my junior year and suddenly people were like, who is that? And suddenly kids who had, didn't even know my name before, who didn't care who I was, they suddenly knew my name, and I was hanging out, all because they also liked flannels and Doc Martens and and grunge music. I finally found, at least I thought I did, what I was longing for. I thought I found belonging. Now, uh, chances are you have a story like that somewhere in your life. Maybe you're in the middle of a story like that right now. 
Um, and, and it might look different for you. Maybe, maybe it's learning a musical instrument so that you can fit in or make the band, or, or maybe it's learning how to write poetry so that you can impress someone, or maybe it's practicing your sport day and night all summer long with the hopes that maybe you might make the team and, and, and wear the jersey and find belonging, or maybe it's some way that you change your appearance or, or twisted or contorted yourself to try to, to try to fit in. See, I think a lot of us carry shame when it comes to those kinds of stories. They're sort of embarrassing, and yet I don't think any of us should feel ashamed or embarrassed because the need to belong is one of the deepest human needs we have. You realize that, right? It's not a small thing. It's not a foolish thing to want to find belonging. It's one of the deepest needs that we carry with us, and I think throughout time, it just gets harder and harder on us to find this thing that we're created for, this thing that we need. See, if you go back, I mean, a few hundred years, let alone a few thousand years, here's what you'll discover, that belonging was a lot easier. If you go back to the first century, and I'm going back to the first century specifically because that was the time when the New Testament was written, that was the time that Jesus walked the earth. If you just go back to the first century for an example, 2,000 years ago, and if you found yourself a, a Jewish person living in the first century, A.D., then belonging was ready-made for you. See, all Jewish people in the first century, they dressed alike, they ate the same things, they talked alike, they had the same customs. Not only that, but they were all from the same family. Chances are if you were a Jewish Jewish person, you could trace your ancestry back to one of the sons of Jacob, one of the original 12 tribes of Israel, or you could go back further to Abraham. You could sometimes go all the way back to Adam and Eve which is why the Bible gets really boring sometimes when you're reading through these long genealogies. But it was a deal back then. You could show that you were blue blood, that you were a part of this family. And, and, and those people worshiped differently than everyone else, and they had very specific ways that they worshiped, and dietary laws, and ceremonial laws, and sacrifices. And best of all, if you were a Jewish person living in the first century, you carried within yourself this knowledge that of all the people on earth, all of the different nations and tribes and languages, you were the chosen people of God. So if you were a Jewish person living in the first century, the only thing you had to do was follow the rules, conform, and you had instant belonging. It was easy. Which I think is one of the reasons that when Jesus came onto the scene, he created such a stir. I mean, there were a lot of reasons, to be sure. Jesus challenged a lot, but, but one of the things he began to do was challenge the very fundamental idea or understanding of belonging that Jewish people carried with him. He began to challenge the fact that it's not about how you dress or, or the food that you eat or the ceremonial laws that you keep or how you worship. It's not about your bloodline or your lineage. He started to challenge those things and saying that stuff alone does not make you a part of God's family. And then not only that, you know what Jesus did? He would go around and he would talk to people who were not of this chosen nation who didn't dress the right way or weren't from the right family, and he would talk to them, and the way he would talk to them and the way he would interact with them, he sent the message, sometimes subtly, sometimes overtly, that they also were invited to belong to God's family. And this ruffled the feathers of everyone in the Jewish community. And then Jesus' followers they, they carried this message forward and they began to teach about it and it created so many tensions in the first century world. And today we're gonna look at one of those followers, a guy by the name of Paul. He wrote a letter to a church in Rome and you don't have to be a Bible scholar to kind of you know, reason that Rome was not 
a hotbed of Judaism. There weren't a lot of Jewish people living in Rome. There were a lot of Greek people or Roman people, uh, what the Bible calls Gentile people living in Rome. And, and this began to create some tensions because these were people who were following Jesus, but they weren't from the Jewish tribe. And, and so Paul writes them a letter, and we're going to look at the beginning of this letter. I just want to warn you that there's kind of a long preamble here to this letter, so don't get bored. Don't start scrolling on your phone. Watch out for each other. You have permission to take someone's phone out of their hand like you're their mama and set it down if they're scrolling, unless it's the Bible. Wouldn't that be funny? I think it'd be funny. You guys obviously don't think it's funny. This is getting way too close to home. All right, so we'll just go on. Um, Romans chapter one, you're like, don't touch my phone. Paul, um, in the Old Testament or in the uh, New Testament letters, um, they introduce themselves in the opening line, which I think makes a lot of sense. If, if you ever get an, e- uh, not an email, but a paper letter from someone, Anyone ever seen one of those paper letters? Thank you card. Um, I, I don't know what you do, but I always like try to find the end to be like, wait, who is this from? I want to know who this is from before I read it. Like there's no joy in the suspense of all these nice things. And then you get to the final, like, oh, now I know who this is from. I, I jumped to the last line. Uh, New Testament people were smarter than us. They just put it right up front. They knew people would jump ahead. So Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. The word apostle means one who is sent. So I'm called to be sent out into the world and I was set apart for the gospel of God. This is my mission. This is my job. The gospel of God, by the way, that God promised way beforehand. So before anything happened to fulfillment, God had talked about this throughout the Old Testament prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And the gospel is about his son, who as to his earthly life or appearance was the descendant of David. So from an earthly point of view, God's son looked just like any other Jewish person. He was from the right family. He had all the right belonging. He was from a fine lineage. But there was more to him than just that. Through the spirit of holiness, he was appointed or revealed to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. If you don't know who I'm talking about, Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he says, I'm all about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ This one who who just from a surface level looks like any other ordinary Jewish man from the right tribe, from the right family, and yet there's something more significant about him, namely that he was raised again from the dead, which proves that he is not just a son of David or a son of Abraham, part of the Jewish family, but he is truly a son of God. So far, so good. He, He goes on and he says, through him we received grace and apostleship, and this is where it gets controversial. So he's talking about himself and the leaders of the church. We've received grace and apostleship, kind of the status or standing, to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And then he goes on, he says, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong. I love this phrase, called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, I know this doesn't seem like much. It just seems like a beginning of a letter. And yet Paul is saying something here that would have been so unsettling in the ancient world that, that people would have started flipping their lids and fighting with each other and, and people would have called him a heretic for these very words. And here's why. Paul is essentially saying that people who are not from the right family, 
who are not from the right bloodline or the right ethnic background, people who are immoral, who are idolaters, who, who sometimes have been found to worship false gods, people whose lives aren't straightened out morally, people who do things that, that the Bible forbids that they do, whether it's eating the wrong kinds of food or, or sleeping with the wrong kind of people or whatever it is, that, that people who would be unthinkable, Jewish people would not accept these people into their community, Paul is saying that according to Jesus, these people also are called to belong, to become part of God's family. And I think one of the reasons that this is so hard for us to understand this, this Gentiles thing is because probably 99% of us sitting in this room are actually Gentiles. We're not from a Jewish lineage. Some of us are, most of us are not. And so we look at Gentiles and we think, what's the matter with Gentiles? We're all Gentiles, we're great people, right? And yet this was not the case in the ancient world. Not only did Gentiles not have a good reputation with Jewish people, there, there was reason that they didn't have a good reputation. They, they were kind of a mess. And so right now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do a quick substitution, a mental substitution. This is only for you. You don't have to share this with anyone else, but I want you to be honest. Who is the group of people today, Gentiles doesn't mean much to us, who is the group of people today who if they walked in here right now and, and they sat down in the front row, a group of people in our greater culture, who's a group of people who if they came into church and sat down and they started participating in the service, you'd be like, what are they doing here? I'm sure you have one. Or, or more if that group of people kept coming back. You know, it wasn't just a fluke. They kept coming back. And, and, and you saw that your pastors were welcoming these people into fellowship here. Who is the group of people who, if that happened, you would start to question the theology of your pastors and you would start to say, I think we might need to find another church. See, that's how scandalous this was. What Paul was doing in the ancient world, saying, you Gentiles, you are called to belong to Jesus. And just to make it clear, he, he finishes off the intro part of the letter, and he says this. He says, to all in Rome, to all in Rome. Now, I, don't, I, I probably can't tell you all about Rome, but, but, but think about New Orleans in the middle of Mardi Gras. Think, think about um, Vegas on a crazy weekend. Think about some you know, resort town in Thailand. I mean, I mean, think about that, and that's kind of what you're talking about in Rome. To all in Rome, Paul says, all of you people who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, I offer you grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. See, as challenging as this might have been, and, and in fact was, I mean, there, there were a lot of fights about this in the New Testament world. Paul is saying something to us so important that actually came first from Jesus. It's this bedrock truth of the New Testament, and it is a bedrock truth for who we are as a church family here at Pathfinder. Here's the truth. The truth is we all belong. We all belong. Belonging doesn't come from a result of our lineage because you're raised in this church or that church or that tradition or we're from that place. It's not about a bloodline. If you were here last week and if you weren't here last week, you need to go back and watch Doug Moss's message uh, because he, he cracked this open for us and did a great job. Uh, belonging, we often get this diagram. This is something he shared. We often do it in reverse. We say, hey, if you want to belong, then first you start here and you got to believe what we believe. And Paul says, no. 
It's not, not just about believing all the right stuff, and yet, as, as, as most of us who are Protestant Christians, the reason there are thousands upon thousands of denominations is the moment we start to believe something differently, we say, wait a minute, we can't belong here anymore. We gotta start over here with our own church, with people who believe like us, and belief is usually the beginning filter for can you belong here. First, you have to believe everything we believe. Or uh, Doug talked about this last week, it's, it's often about behavior, you gotta behave like us, and for Jewish people in the first century, this was huge, you gotta dress like us, you gotta eat like us, you gotta worship like us. And if you don't, you can't belong. And this is how it works in the world. You believe like us, you behave like us, and you can belong. Jesus came into the world and he flipped this around. Again, go listen to Doug's message last week. Go watch it. Come back and watch this. Maybe it'll all make more sense. Because the biblical reality is these things, they're important. What we believe is important. How we behave is important for our own wholeness to get out of these patterns of just, you know, tearing ourselves down and bringing destruction and brokenness and fragmentation into our life and into our families, into our world. Behavior is incredibly important, but these things are not prerequisites to belonging. Paul makes it clear. He says, we all belong. And I'm sure some of you right now are thinking, wait a minute, because I thought the same as I was working on this message. I said, wait a minute, can, can this be true? And some of you are thinking, I don't know how that can be scriptural. Aren't there standards? Shouldn't there be standards? And it depends on what you mean by standards because Paul said, to all in Rome. And if he could say that in Rome, then is there any reason we can't say that in here, in St. Louis, to all in St. Louis or wherever it is that you're from? And of course there are standards, but standards are not the prerequisite. And standards aren't about us fitting the bill or measuring up for the sake of the group. Standards are about God's, God's measures for us, his, his ways for us so that we might find wholeness in life. If it was true in Rome, it has to be true here. I know what some of you are also thinking maybe. Some of you might be thinking, you know, this is the first time I've ever been here or maybe it's the second or the fifth or the tenth time I've been here and I'm not sure I feel like I belong. No one talks to me. People aren't very friendly. No, I, I haven't really felt like I fit in here. If it weren't for the coffee, I wouldn't even come back, but that's some good coffee. It's some good coffee, isn't it? And of course, by coffee, I know what you mean. You mean the preaching. <laughs> I know what you mean. Uh, here's what I'll say, you know, just there's no way that we live this out perfectly. This is an aspiration for us, but we're not there yet. We're, we're not living it out perfectly. I think it'll become truer and truer of us over time that we want to be a place of unconditional acceptance where everyone belongs. But here's what I can also say, that even where you sit today, your first time, your fifth time, feeling like you're an outsider looking in, there's something you can do to help this become truer of us, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on. We all belong. And I know that just sounds like a bumper sticker or some kumbaya fluff. Like, how can that possibly be true? Sure, it sounds great, but how can this, how can this be true? You look around the world and, and you see divisions and you see all the reasons that we don't belong or we don't fit. So, so how can that be true? I want you to know this is not fluff. This is not sentiment. This is biblical truth. This is New Testament truth because Paul not only said it in Romans 1, but he says it again in Galatians 3. So he wrote to another group of churches in a place called Galatia, which sounds a little bit like it might be a land or a planet from Star Wars, I know, but it was a real place. It's now in modern day Turkey. And I want you to see what he says there. Similar place, similar tensions, 
between different kinds of people and, and who fits here and who really belongs and who's blue blood and who's, who's kind of on the outside. And, and here's what he says, Galatians 3, he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Hear what he says? He says, again, we all belong in Christ Jesus through faith. And then he goes on and he says how this actually becomes a reality. For all of you who were baptized, who were baptized, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. So now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, now there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Here's what he's saying, this is shocking. He's saying it doesn't matter if you're actually from Abraham's family or from the right culture or nation. If you belong to Christ, then you're a part of the family. Now how many of you have had the privilege of being an in-law? in a family before, or maybe an outlaw in a family before. Um, you, you know that, that just belonging to a family kind of in name technically doesn't mean you belong. Because there are those moments where it's like, yeah, of course you're part of family, we love you. And then it's like, hey, family reunion, let's get a picture, but let's just have the natural born people, you know? You stand over there while we take the picture. Or better yet, why don't you take the picture? That way you'll not sneak in or photobomb us at all, right? And you're like, well, thanks, I, I kind of, I, I belong, but I don't really belong. See, here's what Paul's saying. If you belong to Christ and you're Abraham's seed, you're a part of the family, but not only are you a part of the family, look at this, and you are heirs according to the promise. Paul says, no matter who you are in Christ, you are invited not only to be a part of the family, but your name is written into the will People are going to get mad about that, right? You're getting into my share, and, and they were, but, but Paul says this is true. You're written into the will. You are now heirs of God's promise. We all belong, Paul says. And I think this is hard for us because for some reason Christianity has become a religion about morality. And however that happened, there, it could not be a bigger corruption, a bigger mistake, because all the religions of the world, they're fundamentally about morality, and Christianity has always been different. See, we get so caught up in, in how do you have to believe or how do you have to behave in order to belong, and, and just like everyone else, we make those our filters. And yet, if you read the Bible, you realize that's not God's preoccupation. Throughout the scriptures, here's what you'll discover, that God's greatest question isn't, are you good? Are you good? Are you good enough? Do you do the right things? Do you pray the right prayers? Do you believe the right things? God's greatest question isn't, are you good? It always is. It always has been, are you mine? To whom do you belong? And God is ready to answer that question for us. He's ready to fill in that blank if we're not sure. To whom do I belong? I, I don't know. God says, you belong to me. Long before Taylor Swift ever sang it, God was saying, you, you, you belong to me. Do you recognize that? Do you realize that? Will you receive that? that? That I've called you to be mine. Now that's the invitation that's put before every person here. To, be, to, to find belonging here at Pathfinder, you know what the qualification is? Do you have a pulse? That's it. It doesn't matter who you've been. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if, like, none of that matters. It doesn't matter. Uh, to belong here at Pathfinder, the only other qualification, fog a mirror. Can you fog a mirror? We'll even make it cold for you. 
You know, make it easy. Just, right? If you're alive, if you have a pulse, if you have breath in your lungs, you belong here. And, and, yet, and yet, how does that become true of us? The invitation is there. We are all called to belong, but how does that actually become a reality? Paul says it here. He says, the way that this happens, the way this becomes personal for us is baptism. For all who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, for there now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Now, baptism, I mean, you can't talk about something more controversial in the church than baptism. We all have these different beliefs on baptism. Right, should you baptize babies, or is it safe for people who are older who understand? Uh, how much water do you use? Is it just like a little sprinkle of water, or do you got to like waterboard people in order for it to count? And does that be fresh water, or tap water, or is there holy water? Is there even a thing as holy water? And, and does baptism save you, or is baptism something you do after you're saved just to profess that you have been saved as an outward declaration? Does it actually change anything? And, and we fight about baptism, and even people who read the scriptures fight about baptism. We splinter off in different groups because we disagree about what the Bible says about baptism. And I think the reason that we have so much difference of opinion on baptism is that we try to view baptism through the lens of salvation first and foremost. We think baptism is about salvation, right? Aren't these the questions that we have about baptism? So if you baptize a baby and then they never grow up and they never hear about Jesus or they walk away from the faith or they never have faith, is is that child still saved? They've been baptized, have they been saved? Or what happens if someone comes to believe in Jesus and they were never baptized and, and before that can happen, they, what happens if they die and they've never been baptized? Can they have salvation? And, and we get all worked up and those are tough questions. And I think they're the wrong questions. That's why they're tough. If you read the New Testament and you read how the New Testament talks about baptism first and foremost, it's not primarily in terms of salvation. Again, you don't, have, you don't have to be mad at me for saying this. If you disagree, just read the New Testament. Here's what you'll discover, that primarily when baptism is spoken about, it's not in terms of salvation. Instead, it's in terms of identity. Galatians 3, you just saw it. For all who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. What is Paul saying? He says, whatever happens in baptism, whatever's going on there, here's the result that you are now made new. And whoever you were, whether you're a Jew from this family or a Gentile from this family, and you believe these things or that things, or you practice this, or you do that, or you made this mistake, or you have this skeleton in your closet, it doesn't matter anymore. You are now made new. Paul says it's first and foremost a change of our identity. We become new people. And see, when we put on Christ, because that's what happens in baptism, we're, we're putting on Christ, God is clothing us, us with Christ, then what that means is whoever we've been, and, and this is so important for you to hear, because if you ever look in the mirror and you look at yourself and you just go, there's so much about me that I don't like or I don't feel like I fit in or I wish there were things about me that I could change or, or I can't believe I'm a person who did this or I can't believe I struggle with this. If that ever has happened to you, here's what you need to know. In baptism, God says, you are now covered, you're clothed in Christ. So when I look at you, as the God of the universe, God says, when I look at you, I only see Jesus. And not only do I see Jesus, but I begin to treat you as if you were 
Jesus, and I know who you are, but, but I choose to treat you as I would treat my holy, perfect, beloved son, Jesus. And as a result, it's not just Jesus who has the right to be called the son of God, but people like us, people who bear no resemblance to God in our actions, in our intentions, in our hearts, or at least very little, people who, who God should reject and go like, I don't know that guy. God says, you're clothed in my son. That means you now are a son. You are my son. You are my daughter. You belong to me, and I've given you a brand new identity. Now, now, see this. When our identity changes in baptism and we become people who belong to God so dearly that he calls us his sons and daughters, here's what you need to know, that God will never forsake his own. And so even in the case of death, if you've been more than, to more than three funerals in your life, chances are you've probably heard the scripture from John 14 where Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, I would have told you. And I am going there to prepare a place for you. You know this? I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me that you might also be where I am. Now, we read that at funerals because primarily Jesus is talking about taking us where? When he says, my father's house, where is he taking us? Mars, space station. He's taking us to heaven, right? He's taking us to heaven. That's why we read it at funerals. It's about eternal life. But notice what he's saying. He's, the reason he's taking us there, the reason we get to be there is he says, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me that you might also be where I am. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, well, of course, even in death, I'm going to take you to be with me. Why? Because you belong with me. You're supposed to be where I am, wherever I am. That's, that's where you are to be. If you are a son or a daughter of God, if you've received this identity change in your life, then here's the truth, that for the rest of eternity, you know where you belong? You belong in the house of God. Not just on a Sunday morning, but, but forever. And that's why God has prepared space for you under his roof, in his house. And so when you receive this identity, not even death gets in the way of your belonging. God says, well, if you're mine, then you've got to be with me forever. Because where else do my sons and daughters belong? They belong with me in my house forever. You see, belonging is given as this gift that stems from this life-changing identity that we are called to receive through baptism. It's the means. And here's why I think this is so important. We are all people who are out there hustling to try to find belonging, to live in the right neighborhood, to prove our worth to someone so that we might fit in. It's not just about proving our worth, it's usually about fitting in. And we're all out there trying, trying to find belonging in some way, form, or fashion. And, and here's, here's, here's where we go wrong with this whole belonging game. This, this is where I went wrong. After, I mean, I went wrong so many ways after 10th grade, but here's where I went wrong. We all tend to think that if we're going to have belonging, that it starts out there somewhere. Right? Finding a group of people who will embrace us, finding a community who will claim us as their own. And if that's true... If belonging begins out there, then here's the, here's the result. It'll always be tentative. 
I'll always be reading the cues about whether I'm in or out, and every little snub, every slight, every tiff will become deeply threatening to me. It will, it will threaten my very sense of, do I belong or not? If, if belonging starts out there, then, then I, I'm, I'm gonna become obsessed with how you're making me feel, or you make me feel like I belong enough, and I'm gonna be watching to see if, if I'm included enough, and, and then no lover will ever love me enough. And no friend will ever be exclusive or loyal enough. And no church will ever be friendly enough. Brene Brown, an author that you should read, she says that if you live life looking for evidence that you don't belong, you'll find it. It, it, It's out there. It all, all depends what you focus on. See, if belonging starts out there, if it's given by the community, if the community gives it, then the community can take it away whenever I step out of line, when I don't conform, when I don't follow the rules. See, belonging doesn't start out there. And that's where we spend all of our time looking for it. Belonging starts in here. It starts in knowing who I am in God's sight. That God is so eager to be in a relationship with me, to claim me as his own, that he sent his son into the world to die and to arise again so that in baptism, and this is biblical, in baptism, I might begin to be put to death, just like Christ, to all of the things that I hate about me. All of the things that I know are killing me and are hurting others, the things that I wish I could be free from, God begins to put those things to death in me. And just like with Jesus, he begins to bring me to new life. He begins to make me new. See, that's where belonging begins and it starts in here with this identity that can't be taken away, that can't be stripped away knowing as I live life that I am called to belong. See, belonging is your birthright. It's what you carry deep inside of you. It's not anything anyone can give you. And when you understand that, that that in baptism, God's the only one who can give it. And in baptism, when he claims you as his own, that's an everlasting claim. And sure, you can be a wayward son or daughter. You can be a prodigal. But we know how God even handles the prodigals, right? There's a story about that, how he watches and waits to embrace them when they come back. See, when you stop looking for belonging out there, but when you start to carry it in here, it changes everything. Really two things I want to highlight. The first thing that happens when you stop looking for belonging out there, but but you realize it starts in here with this identity that you receive in baptism, the first thing that will happen is you will become rejection proof. You'll become rejection proof. Now, last week I was at the GLS, the Global Leadership Summit, which sounds fancy, but it's just right here in town. It costs like 100 bucks to go. I don't know that there's any reason that all of you shouldn't have gone. It's really incredible personal growth and leadership training. Um, So I hope you'll all be there next year with me. Um, But one of the speakers was a a man, he's a Chinese immigrant by the name of Jia Jiang. I think I said his name right. And um, he was a guy who, like a lot of us, struggled with rejection. And so um, he was so afraid of it that he finally decided that it was holding him back and he was going to desensitize himself to rejection. He was going to stare rejection in the face. And so here's what he did. He took on a challenge, 100 days of rejection, where each day he had a challenge in front of him, something that he was going to do where he was sure to be rejected, something that he would ask people to help him with or ask him to ask them to let him do, and they would surely say no. And, and so he started off, and he started asking people for crazy things that they would say no to, and he found that he didn't fall apart, he didn't break. But then something weird started to happen, maybe a few days in, suddenly people started saying yes. He showed up at a guy's door in um, soccer cleats, in um, shin guards with a soccer ball in his arm, a stranger rang his doorbell and said, can I play soccer in your backyard? 
Now, to be fair, this was in Austin, and people in Austin are weird, but the guy, right, keep Austin weird. The guy, the guy said, uh, sure. <laughs> and then he was like, oh, no, now what do I do? I didn't plan to get this far. So, yeah, he goes around and kicks a soccer ball around in the guy's backyard. He goes to an airstrip and uh, asks uh, a small airport, he asks a guy sitting inside, do you have a plane? The guy says, yeah. He says, can I fly your plane? The guy says, do you know how to fly? And he says, no. And the guy says, sure, <laughs> and takes him up in his plane. Um, and, and so he learns how to become rejection proof, but he also learns that there's maybe not as much rejection out there in the world as, as, you, as you think. So if you're someone who, who fears rejection, maybe that's a good place for you to start, but I don't think you have to take a 100-day challenge. See, if, if you carry this inside of you, this deep sense of belonging that God offers you, that you're called his son, you're called his daughter, then it doesn't matter how people snub you or who shuns you or who breaks up with you or who fires you. That won't send you into a tailspin of rejection, of existential questioning. You'll be rejection-proof when you stop looking for belonging out there, but know that it comes from here. That's the first thing. The second thing, here's what'll happen when you really embrace this. When, when you embrace this belonging that God has offered to you that you carry deep inside of you no matter what, here's what else will happen. Is you'll be one of those people who as you live life, you will just ooze belonging to anyone who comes in your circle. You know people like that, right? People who, when you're with them, I just saw some people in Portland like this. I, I barely know these people. I feel like they're my closest friends. People who, when you sit with them, uh, you, you just feel known and seen and you feel valued and you feel like, I belong here. See, as long as you look for belonging out there, you'll never be one of those kinds of people. But the moment you start to understand that belonging begins in here, it's this, this birthright that you carry from God, it's an identity, then you'll become one of those people who can help others who don't yet know about this greater belonging from God. You'll be able to help them feel a sense of belonging too. And I'll tell you, in this house here at Pathfinder, that's who we wanna be. A community of people where all people, no matter what you're from, can walk onto this campus, walk into these doors, and know I belong. I think Steve Hauer, our former senior pastor, said it best. Um, week after week, he would stand up here often at the beginning of a service, and he would say, welcome to God's house. You're God's child, so welcome home in this house. May that be true of us, a place where all will know they are God's child and they belong. Pray with me, Father in heaven. I ask right now that you would help take a phrase that I think is so often just churchy and cliche, that we are your children. We're children of God, that we're sons of God, daughters of God, a, a phrase that I think sometimes doesn't mean much to us and I, I pray today that you would begin to break that open and, and just scratch into the callous parts of our minds and our hearts and our beings so that we might receive this life-changing truth. That you've called people like us who often bear no resemblance to you, have no right to claim you. You call us to belong in the most intimate way as your sons, as your daughters. God, today begin to speak that over us, this invitation to belonging, that we might find belonging deep within ourselves through a relationship with you. 
And God, that out of a sense of belonging, we may live our lives not only rejection-proof, but as people who, who are ambassadors of your kingdom, who, who communicate belonging to everyone who crosses our path. I pray this in Jesus. Amen.